When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today, we're celebrating Halloween with an hour-long conversation with Oscar-winning director William Friedkin, who made arguably the scariest movie of all time in The Exorcist. I spoke with Friedkin in 2015 when he came to D.C. to designate The Exorcist steps as an official historical landmark in Georgetown. We also discussed his journey from directing TV episodes for the Alfred Hitchcock Hour to Best Picture winners like The French Connection. Enjoy. Hello. Hello, Mr. Friedkin. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Is this Jason? Hey, this is Jason Fairley at WTOP in D.C. Thanks for taking the time to join us, and uh, happy birthday. You just celebrated 80th, right? Yeah, I only celebrate with my family, Jason. I don't really mark these dates anymore. <laughs> I'm long past that point, but uh, thank you anyway. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. And uh, before we go into the Exorcist event, um, we're catching you right before you head to Europe, right? What are you working on over there? Uh, I'm going to Turin on September 13th for about five weeks where I'm directing the opera Aida for the Teatro Reggio in Torino. And, and uh, I've done this before, you know. Uh, I've, uh, I've directed about more than 15 operas since 1998. I'm not even sure how many. <laughs> but um, then, uh, so I'll direct uh, uh, Aida for the opening of the season. And... Um, then I go to uh, Rome to speak at the uh, Rome Film Festival. And uh, then shortly after, I'm planning to go to Florence in November to direct Rigoletto for the Florence Opera with my friend Zubin Maida conducting. And then I start, uh, come back and start working on this television series of To Live and Die in L.A. Well, that sounds fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, when you come back from Europe on October 30th, you will be taking part in uh, what sounds like a really cool Exorcist Steps commemoration. Um, how, did, how did the DuPont Festival contact you? How did you get that set up? Well, a fellow named uh, Andrew Huff, who I uh, believe is involved with um, uh, the D.C. Uh, Film Commission, um, got in touch with me actually through Twitter. Uh, he found me on Twitter and sent me a note, and he sent me an outline of the plaque that they want to do, and I thought it was a, a wonderful idea. It's been called The Exorcist Steps for many years anyway, but this is going to be uh, official. So uh, 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 I, I, I was very happy to participate in it because I think it's a great idea. Yeah, does it amaze you that, you know, after all these years, those steps and, and the house right there have become a, a local landmark for our Georgetown residents here? Yes, but, you know, 
believe me, I'll tell you, uh, I, I had some misgivings for many years because the original owner of the house, not the actual original owner, but uh, the woman who owned it at the time we made the film was a woman named Florence Mahoney, mm -hmm. a, a wonderful woman. And she was a major contributor uh, to democratic politics. And while we were filming there, uh, she was hosting George McGovern, who was running for president at the time. Yeah. And he would come over to her house after a day or so out on the road. And, but she had no idea whatsoever um, of what those steps would become. Right. And right. Kind of, it kind of made her life very difficult for a long time. Uh, none of us anticipated that either, but people took uh, stuff out of the uh, fence and they graffitied the walls for years. And I guess a lot of people still camp out there, you know, on uh, on the steps. And Mrs. Mahoney is gone, but I imagine, you know, it's caused a, a, a lot of unexpected problems. Yeah, I mean, I think for some reason folks uh, flock to uh, that horror film landmark. It's, it's really been some kind of a phenomenon. Um, yeah, well, of course, you know, the film's been seen many, many times all over the world. Definitely. And, uh, so, uh, but I'm, I'm very pleased about it. Um, you know, Mr. Blatty wrote th that house and those steps into his novel without knowing who owned the house <laughs> or if it, or even if the, at the time he wrote the novel, there wasn't going to be a film made. Um, and he could never anticipate that that area would become so iconic. Definitely. And he'll be at the event, too, right? Yeah, I've yes, I've made sure that he will be at the event. He lives in Bethesda. Mm -hmm. And he studied at Georgetown, too, right? He was going to be a Jesuit priest? I don't know if he was studying for the priesthood. Georgetown has always been, you know, a great education. Um, and uh, it had many great schools, uh, the law school, the school of medicine, uh, now government. Um, but... Blatty was an undergraduate there in 1949 when the original case upon which The Exorcist was inspired mm -hmm. um, took place in Silver Spring, Maryland. That's funny. And, and it was, a, in fact, uh, the story of that case is you can Google it, your listeners can Google it. Mm -hmm. um, just type in 1949 Exorcism. And you'll get uh, about a two-and-a-half-page, front-page story in the Washington Post by a reporter named Bill Brinkley, who laid out the, all of the details of the case without mentioning the name of the person, of course. But it's a, it's a lengthy article that uh, Blatty had read that inspired uh, his uh, desire to write about that case. And of course, uh, the church kept it uh, then and now very close uh, because they didn't want to uh, create a lot of publicity around it or reveal uh, the name of, of the, the victim uh, who was uh, exercised and uh, is still around and has no memory of what happened in those days wow. when it was a young man who was 14 years old at the time.
It's so wild to me. Here we are in, in, in 1949, out you know, out on the West Coast, Hollywood's doing all the Kingsmen and White Heat, I think it was probably that year. Um, and then over here we have Blatty just reading the Post article, getting inspired to something that will become its own part of Hollywood history. It's just wild to me how that works. Um, yeah, well, he actually spoke to the original exorcist, a man whose name was Father William Bowdern. Mm -hmm. And uh, they corresponded for a long, long time. That, that's I'm sure and that adds to the, the creepy factor for, for viewers all these years later to think that it was it was based on something that happened. Um, the first time we see that house and those steps, it's it, it's that great intro of the of the Georgetown skyline. Um, it looks almost like a long zoom from over on. Like, were you guys over in Roslyn? How'd you accomplish that? Yeah. Was it a long crazy it was zoom? From a, it was from a hill in Roslyn. And of course, uh, it was very low light level. Uh, we shot it early in the morning. And um, so the steps are very hard to see at that point. It's not until later in the film that I feature them. But at that point, if you know where the steps are and you look for them, you can probably pick them out. But yes, it's about, I guess, around 10 minutes in before you see an extreme long shot from Roslyn. What kind of a zoom lens did you use when you were going over the key bridge there across the across to the skyline? Well, it was the best zoom that Panavision made at the time, but uh, it obviously uh, was underexposed and uh, was done at a time of very low light levels. But it had about a it had about a twenty to one uh, zoom ratio. Gotcha. Gotcha. Was was that uh, always your intention to use a zoom there? I mean, I knew they were a little more popular back in the 70s. You know, Coppola used them in the conversation and stuff like that. But was part of it pure practicality? I mean, is DC wouldn't allow, you know, a copter shot over there for security reasons? Or, you know, or was, or was that just your intention to do the zoom anyway? No. I mean, if I was doing it today, I'd use a drone. A, a octocopter. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of very effective shots being made uh, very stabilized as well from drones now, tiny little handheld drones that that uh, contain these GoPro cameras. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would have done today. But at the time, the only place you could get back safely far enough from the steps to give an overall view mm -hmm. uh, on the left side of the frame of the university and on the right side, the steps and the house so that you could see the proximity of the house to the university. But um, the zoom actually goes toward the, the back of the house, mm -hmm. which is at 36th and Prospect. Mm -hmm. And um, the zoom heads toward the bedroom window, and then there's a cut inside of uh, uh, Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn, uh, in the morning uh, in the bedroom. I think it's a light bulb turning on or something, right? A light bulb turns on, and she's working on the script that she's making on location at Georgetown University. She plays an actress on location in the film who's renting that house. Well, maybe after this interview, someone's going to see that light bulb turn on and get the light bulb, metaphorical light bulb, to uh, do your little drone octocopter idea. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, listen, uh, these drone cameras are amazing. Now, they're in such wide use today that um, they're starting to ban them. Yeah, yeah. You I'm, can't I'm... fly anywhere near an airport, obviously, 
and government buildings and stuff like that. But uh, the Zoom was the best equipment we had then to make the kind of shot I wanted, which was to contain the university and the house and move toward the house. Definitely. Is there is there a part of the movie that you, you know, everyone remembers tubular bells and the spinning head and, you know, the levitation and all the famous stuff. But is there a part of the movie that you love the most that personally that might be you might consider sort of underrated in the public consciousness? Well, probably uh, it's not even considered. But my favorite scene in the film, I have two favorite scenes. One is the one between Lee J. Cobb, who plays Detective Kinderman, mm -hmm. when he first comes to the house to interview Chris McNeil about the death of the director of her film, mm -hmm. who had fallen down the stairs somehow with his neck turned completely around. <laughs> And it's a scene that shows um, uh, the two of them both talking around the subject, tiptoeing around it very cautiously, each of them knowing that the only person in the room with the man who fell down those stairs was her daughter, yeah. her 12-year-old daughter. And that, to me, to this day, is the, the most beautifully played scene I've ever directed. I just did one take on each side, one on her side, looking at him, and a reverse of that. And it was one take each, two great actors, and they just nailed it. And I cross-cut um, between those two zoom shots. So that's that's a scene I'm really proud of. It's It's more horrific than some of the more graphic yeah. stuff to me. And it's foreshadowing of the of the sp spun head around. Yes. And the other scene is between uh, Ellen uh, and Linda Blair just before Chris McNeil puts her daughter Reagan to bed. And they have a conversation. And, and we had rehearsed that scene so often that I allowed the, the, the two actresses to just improvise it because I had rehearsed them so much that I told them, now just put it in your own words and, and just, do, just be a mother and a daughter. And they played it so beautifully. And uh, those are the two scenes I'm most proud of, uh, of anything I've ever done. You hear that, T.O.P. listeners? Go, you know, you know the famous scenes. Go back and look for those scenes that Mr. Freakin is talking about, because that is how you're going to learn to write and direct right there. Um, well, these are these are brilliantly acted, and that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. It's all about convincing acting and not seeming to be working off a script, but it appears to be improvised, and in fact, it was. Although they knew what the the basic plot lines were totally you mentioned you brought up the actors is it was it different working with let's say newcomers like jason miller and linda blair versus more you know established stars like a max von sydow or ellen burston or you know no not really uh the uh jason miller and linda blair uh, were gifts of the movie god <laughs> neither of them had been in a film before Jason had done some acting in road companies, never leads. He was basically a playwright at the time. And I met him uh, very offhandedly. And Linda came in for a meeting in my office in New York, which was at 666 Fifth Avenue, by the way. 
an address that no longer exists. <laughs> but that's where Warner Brothers was at that time. But she, came, her mother brought her in without an appointment. We had seen thousands of girls her age who were put on tape uh, from across the country or who I had met personally. And I began to think I could never cast that role. <laughs> and then one day, Linda's mother brought her in. She walked in the door, and I knew instantly. And uh, they actually, th the main thing I look for in an actor is intelligence, mm -hmm. the ability to understand and to um, ingest the script and their character uh, without being either troubled by it or overwhelmed by it. And so th they were those people. Miller, in fact, uh, had studied for the priesthood. Um, uh, and uh, he studied for three years for the priesthood, had a crisis of faith, and dropped out. So his own life... <laughs> Perfect for that role. <laughs> was, was, his own experience was very similar to the character. And he was a brilliant guy and understood that character. And Linda just did instinctively. Absolutely. And I think the you you mean you mentioned you know working with the actors and how they were so great at and brilliant at improvising. Um it almost I think that the part of the reason I think the movie works so well is is it how it's it almost play I mean it's got the, some of the greatest shock scenes ever in in Hollywood history but when you watch it I mean it, it almost has got that slow burn old school suspense feel to it. Um do you do you do you think wish more movies kind of followed that um pattern do you think that too many movies go for too many jump scares throughout the whole thing or you what's your thought on that process it's hard to generalize jason but yeah. here's the point um i said blatty and i set out to do a suspense film mm -hmm. we never used the word or talked about a horror film Perfect. obviously the book was disturbing it was disturbing to me especially when i learned that it was based on an actual case one of only three cases in the 20th century that the Catholic Church in America had authenticated as a case warranting an exorcism. Only three in the 20th century. And so that in itself was disturbing. But we set out to make a suspense film about the mystery of faith. And I think I think adhering to that, um, you know, with that letting that be your compass, I think is why it still holds up. You didn't set out to make this quote unquote scariest movie of all time, but no, I, th I mean, and I understand that. Look, I I'm not going to deny that that's how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. I used to quarrel with people, especially interviewers, who would call it a horror film, <laughs> and I would say it's not a horror film. It was never intended to be, but. That's how people perceive it, and so I guess it is. But we didn't set out to make a horror film. I had no models. None of the great horror films were my models. Right. Nothing, you know, the scariest film I had ever seen at the time was Psycho, right? which also is at least as much of a suspense film as it is a horror film. And then much later... Uh, the scariest film I've seen was Alien, yep. which is uh, undoubtedly a, a, a horror film and a great one. The, interestingly, there are very few films that I could name that I think are classic 
horror films. And, you know, to me, The Exorcist is a suspense film, but it's it's about the mystery of faith. That is the the text, not the subtext. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone remembers Hitchcock as the master of suspense. Um, um, and so I think you're you're dead on to to use that as your model. Now, I know you you encountered him right back in the, when you were shooting a TV episode, right? In the Alfred Hitchcock hour. And he uh, he he gave you a little uh, a little grief about your tie. Right. Give us tell us the story. Well, I directed the very last Alfred Hitchcock hour that they made it. It had been on. Uh, for 10 years. And I did the last one. I was very young and uh, never been on a soundstage, but I'd made a documentary that uh, impressed the producers of the Hitchcock Hour. And uh, one day he came on the set uh, to do his introductions. He would come in one day and film about a week's worth of introductions. And he was brought over to where I was directing um, a scene with John Gavin. Wow. Of Psycho, right? Yeah. John Gavin, who was in Psycho and is now one of my best friends. And uh, we actually shot at the Bates Motel as well in that film. It's called Off Season. But um, uh, Hitchcock was brought over to meet me. And, of course, he was a legend then. And he walked over to me with this entourage all in black suits like him. (laughs) And uh, he stuck out his hand in a manner that appeared as though he wanted me to kiss it. It wasn't (laughs) like a handshake. Kiss the ring. (laughs) It felt like that. His hand was sort of clammy, I must say. Um, And I took his hand and I said, oh, what a great pleasure to meet you. And he said, Mr. Friedkin, usually our directors wear ties. And I thought he was kidding. And uh, so I started to mumble out some stupid answer. I was wearing a T-shirt and uh, Gap pants. <laughs> and um, he was, of course, in his black suit and black tie. And uh, he, before I could finish my answer, he walked away. And uh, then I think it was about five years later, I had won the Directors Guild Award for French Connection. Uh And at the dinner, I noticed that it's done at a dinner. And I noticed in the table right below where I was standing uh, on the stage to accept the award, there was Hitchcock and his family. And so I had one of these uh, rented tuxedos and a clip-on bow tie and I had this enormous Directors Guild Award. Instead of going off stage to do interviews with the press, I walked down the center steps to Hitchcock's table, and I, and I snapped my bow tie at him, and I said, how do you like the tie now, Hitch? <laughs> Did he and, say anything back? No, he stared at me like I was crazy. <laughs> he didn't remember it, of uh... course, but I carried it with me for all those years. Oh, that is priceless. <laughs> you but, might... but I must say, you know, I still regard him as one of the very greatest filmmakers of all time, as most people do. Yeah, if not the greatest. It, it, amazing. I, and you mentioned The French Connection, and I do want to ask you about that. But before we move on from Hitch, um, do, you, do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie? I mean, for me, it's Vertigo all the way. Psycho. Psycho, yeah. N- nothing compares to that for me. Um of his, I well, I love North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great thriller. Um, 
I did a uh, commentary on the Vertigo, uh, the DVD of Vertigo, maybe be the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, Vertigo is probably Hitchcock's most personal film, mm-hmm. in that it really gets to his own, um, his own uh, hang-ups. And uh, right. but I, I don't fancy it as much as I do Psycho or North by Northwest. And there, there's some others that are really great, not just suspense films. He was a great director of uh, comedy Romance and too. scenes. His love scenes are masterful and understated. Everything about Hitchcock, except Psycho, is very understated, except for the films that followed Psycho, uh, like Frenzy, and um, the, the one he did with Paul Newman, which is, you know, where he knew he could get away with the harder stuff. Mm-hmm. But earlier on, it was pure suspense. Yeah, if I don't, for some reason, Vertigo, I don't know, it, it just planted a seed in me the first time I watched it, and I find more and more stuff the more I watch it. Like, when the villain first brings Jimmy Stewart into his, you know, his shipbuilding office, and he tells him the whole tale, basically, he puts on a performance about being possessed, and he's trying to, you know, entrap Jimmy. He steps up onto, like, another level uh, in the room. It's like almost like a dining room attached to uh, his office. And literally, the, the second that he starts telling this story and putting on this performance, telling this lie he steps up as if on a stage and walks around and the second he's done telling his little story he comes down off of it or there's little things like that throughout the whole thing or how he's always tilting up to show bell towers behind jimmy throughout his you know whole san francisco detective trail or the reds and the greens versus the mortal and the eternal world and for some reason i just keep coming back to that but hey i can't fault you for psycho i mean the movie that movie has got so much going on in it too we could talk forever about hitch i'm sure yeah (laughs) very interesting man very interesting very complicated uh and he's one of the few that was able to put his own obsessions on the screen constantly and all of his films taken together are are like an autobiography of Hitchcock. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, well, you mentioned French Connection and how, you know, you, you, fi- you finally got to say, how do you like my tie now, Hitch, um, when you won director for that. Um, when you set out to shoot that, I mean, this is, I mean, we mentioned The Exorcist. This is a totally different style. The Exorcist, you were, you know, you were a made man at that point. You could do all these effects and stuff. But with The French Connection, it was a much more gritty style, almost like those old Italian neorealist stuff. Weren't you using cameramen in wheelchairs on the subway and like sort of undercover filming for that? Yes, uh, I had a great cameraman who, his name was Ricky Bravo, and he actually photographed the Cuban Revolution at Castro's side. And later he defected. But he was a great handheld camera operator. And so we never laid down dolly tracks or things like that to keep the camera smooth. He could keep the camera smooth while being pushed in a wheelchair. And so you didn't need as much setup time. Uh, And he could also move around with a handheld camera. And... But he also photographed The Exorcist, where uh, we did use a lot of dolly tracks, and because it required a different style, mm-hmm. smoother than The French Connection, which I shot like a documentary. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, he had great skill with the camera, and um, th- those were his earliest films when he came to America. But. The the styles of both films are completely different, except for the fact 
that I didn't use visual effects. We didn't have anything like what you have today. You you can do anything with computer with computer generated imagery today, and we didn't have that. You know, we, we didn't have that in the seventies. So everything that we did that you see in those films, we had to actually do. So the practical effects versus, you know, digital and all that stuff. Yes, the both films contain practical effects. And in, in both cases, much of that stuff had never been done. The effects in The Exorcist had, had never been done. For example, showing breath in a room. Today, you can draw that in easily and effectively on a computer. In those days, um, when they wanted to show breath in a film, like in Lost Horizon, mm -hmm. they would shoot the scene at the Glendale Ice House, um, <laughs> wow. you know, where big bricks of ice were made. Yeah. But um, uh, at the time, there the Glendale Ice House was gone. Uh, <laughs> they were no longer making those huge bricks. So I had to refrigerate the rooms. <laughs> Sometimes to 30 below zero to uh, and then when the lights came on, the movie lights went on, the temperature would rise sometimes up to a point where we had to shut down, stop shooting and build up the cold again. Wow. But wow. so we had to actually do everything that you see, including the levitations, mm -hmm. including the bed shaking, all of the other effects um, we had to invent and so there was a long period of experimentation before we shot it do you i mean do you i mean when you're watching movies today i mean obviously there's a place for the cgi and all that stuff but i mean i've always been there's something about those practical effects that it's almost like it it, it carries a, a a soul to it or something it's i've always preferred the practical effects i mean what's your thought on that i think in the case of let's say the exorcist and the French Connection, because the actors had to actually go through those experiences, <laughs> I think it makes their performances more authentic mm -hmm. than if they're simply, you know, wired up and look like they're flying around or right. jumping off buildings, but they're not. Right. I think it affects performance. There's no doubt about that. But the effect of, uh, of what they can do now is sensational. You can be taken to places that we could only dream about uh, back then. Uh, but if we had scenes uh, like the ones in those two films, we had to find a way, often experimentally, to actually do them. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. 
Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Do you think if, if uh, let's say, someone set out to make The Exorcist today, do you think... Um, there would be that temptation to use those digital effects. Like, or do you do you think you ha- it was right place, right time that it was a, an era for practical effects, and that you know that that really benefited the movie? I think it did. There was no other way at yeah. the time. Now, obviously, I'm sure you and your listeners know The Exorcist has been ripped off, you know, <laughs> more times than probably yeah. the works of Charles Dickens. So. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, it, it's been ripped off so often, and it's all computer-generated effects. Even chase scenes today are done with computer-generated effects. And they're, they're, you know, often very effective, I believe, and they're certainly a lot safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to you that, you know, it wasn't a great risk to do a lot of the scenes that we did in those films. They were very difficult for the actors and risky. And in the case of the, like the French Connection chase, yeah. Yeah. they were risky to people on the street. And so fortunately, there is a way to achieve them now uh, that um, overcomes that. Take me into that into that great chase sequence with Gene Hackman. I mean, a lot of people hold that up as the chase sequence in, in history. I mean, how, how did you go about storyboarding that and structuring that before you set out to shoot it? I didn't storyboard it. Oh, wow. I went to all the locations. I went to many other locations around Brooklyn and Queens where most of it, where all of it basically took place. And I found locations that I thought would be appropriate. And then I designed the shots to fit those locations. And then we filmed one shot at a time. It's not unlike knitting. If, if many of your listeners have ever uh, knitted a sweater or a pair of socks, mm-hmm. you know that it's one stitch at a time. Knit right. one, purl two. Knit one, purl two. That's how a chase scene is filmed. One shot at a time. And if any of your listeners or you, Jason, were on the set watching the chase being filmed, you'd get bored after about a half hour of it because it's one shot, you make it, and then you move on. And you don't get a sense of how the overall is going to be put together and the addition of sound, which is so... All the sound was put in afterward. And the sound is so effective in carrying out the effect. But... um, the other thing is, there were times when we went 90 miles an hour through big city traffic without any clearances to do it. Just, I had a, when you weren't seeing the car, when it was inside the car looking out or on Gene Hackman's face, um, there was a gumball on top of the car, you know, a police gumball mm-hmm. and a siren that warned people, but that was it. We just went through traffic. The other thing I will say to you about what I think makes that scene effective is it's more about the driver than it is about the car. Right. It's more about what's going on with his obsession to catch that 
up to that guy in the elevated train. Mm-hmm. And and um, so it's it's really you're in the car with him while you're seeing the result of what he's doing. And I don't think there's enough of that in chase scenes today. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, filmmakers who do them today think it's about how fast you can run the cars and how how much you can wreck things and all that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And I, we didn't have any of those crashes planned. Right. Those were all accidental. <laughs> I had no contact planned between Gene's car and any other vehicle. Those were accidents that occurred that I kept in the sequence. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what does it. You, you just nailed it. it it's we, we are in that car with Gene Hackman because you are focusing, you know, what you're cutting with the woman that he almost hits in the street, and then you cut into his eyes. I mean, it is, we feel like we are him in that scene. What was it like working with Gene Hackman? Had you, um, had you seen him in Bonnie and Clyde in 67 and then, you know, it, and just he's always stuck in your mind? Or how did you get him to become your Popeye? Well, he was the last choice, to be <laughs> honest with you. But uh, I, one thing about the, the woman with the baby carriage, mm-hmm. that was the easiest and the least dangerous sequence to shoot. Yeah. Because, again, it was a zoom into the woman's face. She was never in proximity to the car. Right. Uh, it was done with long lenses. Each uh, end of those shots, Jean's end and her end, were done separately and cut together. Uh, but uh, my first choice for the role of Popeye was Jackie Gleason. Oh, wow. And the studio wouldn't go with Gleason because he had made a film for them earlier called Gigo. It was a silent movie about a clown, and it was the biggest disaster in the history <laughs> of 20th Century Fox. So they wouldn't go with him. We had many other actors that we went to long before Gene. And I think Gene might have been about the 10th guy that we even considered. And he was the last man standing. But he gave a great performance. Uh, It's just great. And I never had him in mind initially or even along the way until the very end. There is something called the movie god and that gene like the cast of the exorcist was a gift of the movie god would you say the same for uh roy scheider yeah roy walked in the door he came into audition one day he had made a film but it hadn't come out yet he was he had a role in a film called clute but he was Mm -hmm. basically a stage actor He walked into my office and I could see immediately that he was the character who's called uh, Cloudy in the movie. Uh, uh, And uh, he walked in and he sat down and I said, "Uh, uh, what are you up to these days, Roy? And he said, well, I'm in an off-Broadway play by Jean Genet. And I said, what part do you play? And he said, "Uh, I play a cigar-smoking nun. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And I said, okay, you're hired. You got it. He said, what? I said, don't you want me to read? I said, Roy, there's nothing to read. The, all this guy does is run around and say, put your hands up, get on the ground, whatever, you know, stop, hold it. There's nothing to read. This isn't Shakespeare or Jean Genet. <laughs> you are right for this part. and You got it. Awesome. Does it take, I mean, did you, do you get it, take a little pride, you know, let's say after the French connection, 
you know, you've you've kind of helped put him on the map, and then you sit back and you see him in like a blockbuster like Jaws, or even something. You know, I loved him in all that jazz, the um, p- kind of playing the autobiographical version of uh, Fosse. Uh, Fosse. Yeah. yeah. No, um, Roy was great and made some wonderful uh, films in his career, including another one he did with me called Sorcerer. Yeah. Which I believe is the best film I've ever made. What inspired uh, Sorcerer? Just my feeling about making a film about uh, the fact that if people on the planet didn't start to cooperate, we'd all blow up together. That's the metaphor for the film Sorcerer. And the inspiration for it was a film, an earlier film by H.G. Clouseau, another great master of suspense who had directed The Wages, Wages of, of Fear, Fear yeah. which inspired Sorcerer. And he also did Diabolique, which is probably... Uh, uh, the second or third favorite suspense film I've ever seen. So I wanted to make a film in that genre, also one that was a lot like The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Oh, which great was, movie. Which is one of my favorite films. And um, I got together with a writer who worked in documentaries with me called Wally Green, who had also written The Wild Bunch that Sam Peckinpah <laughs> directed. And we wrote Sorcerer. And uh, it's now playing in theaters all over France and in many other parts of the world. And there's been a Blu-ray. It had uh, a limited theatrical release in America again uh, last year, Um, but it continues to play in theaters. But it had a gigantic Blu-ray release in this country, still going. And uh, it's come back. We made that in 1977. And it's the film I made right after The X's. Well, right after, four years later. Because I spent uh, over three years going around with The Exorcist to all of its foreign territories um, to supervise the French, uh, Spanish, Italian, German, and Japanese versions of the film in in terms of the dialogue and the translations. Gotcha. You mentioned you mentioned Wages of Fear and Sierra Madre, the Wild Bunch, um, and then of course we talked Hitchcock. Um, and I also know your you know your infinity for uh, Citizen Kane and Orson Welles as well. Um, do you have a favorite classic movie? Citizen Kane. Yeah. It, you know the the best films for me. Um, it's a very personal list, but it's uh, Citizen Kane, All About Eve. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Paths of Glory, 2001, and then some of the MGM musicals, Singing in the Rain, The Bandwagon, An American in Paris, yeah. uh, and then a film called The Parallax View, oh, yeah. which is, uh, is, is not a film that's been widely seen. And then one of my all-time favorites is a film with Paul Newman called The Verdict. I watched that film over and over again. It was directed by Sidney Lumet. It was a, ma- a Mamet script too, right? Mamet wrote the script. To me, it, I, I get constant inspiration and enjoyment from just watching it. Overall, I think it's among the best uh, 
ensemble performances ever put on film. Right from that opening scene when he's working that pinball machine and then just the way they, they disclose him, you know, circling the obituaries in the newspaper and, you know, just this drunken uh, guy trying to take advantage of these grieving families. Like, right from the get-go, you're just engaged in a way that not many movies do. Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, to me, it's one of the very greatest. I don't see anything today that's in that class. And that... All the performances are just magnificent. It's a great, great film. The Verdict with Paul Newman, directed by Sidney Lumet. 1982. And I say, that's a personal list. A lot of people, I love The Godfather as well. I love a lot of films. Most of them, you know, are were made before 1980, though, to be <laughs> honest with you. Sort of in but that, the two, yeah. the two Kubrick films that I... I love the most are Paths of Glory in 2001. Um, but you're the hell of a film buff yourself. <laughs> well, I would hope so. I'm a movie critic. Yeah, no, but it's true. There's a lot of, I mean, I'm 30 years old. There's a lot of people at this age, hate to say it, um, it's like life never existed before, you know, the mid-80s. And, you know, it's, so, I, what? Well, look, that's, that's to be expected. I mean, more people are reading Harry Potter than read Dickens, right. you know, or uh, <laughs> Faulkner or uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway, you, you know, or any of the great classic writers. More people have read Harry Potter in a week than read Proust in his lifetime, you know, in all the years since 1912 when his uh, great novel was first published. Well, yeah, I mean, pop culture, you know, and the public consciousness, all that, I mean, it certainly evolves, and, there, you know, there's new things coming out. So, I mean, I understand it, but just t talk a little bit about, you know, why is it important, though, that, you know, let's say these Harry Potter fans, great, learn learn your Harry Potter, that's all fine and well, but, um, you know, why is it important for them to then study up and, and study these old movies? Like movies. like a Citizen Kane, man. They're, every shot in that has a symbolic idea. Like, ha explain how they can learn to see through the cinematic eye, see in a new way through some of these old masters. I'll tell you, I would recommend that only if they're really interested in the history of, of cinema. Every generation has its own classics, mm -hmm. its own masterpieces, and its own tastes. And the tastes of the past should not be imposed on people who just want to see a film and enjoy it. Right. And right. see a film that they can relate to in their own lifetime, you know. And so I only say watch those films if you're interested in how cinema grew from its earliest days um, into the 20th century. Um, but... but there are just as many films that have inspired people that are made in this generation than there were then. What are some of the Citizen Kane is before my generation, but it's the film that inspired me to become a filmmaker. I imagine that today a lot of young filmmakers, I know it in fact, were inspired to become filmmakers by Star Wars. Right. And that's as it should be. Are there are there movies that are coming out today, and or or filmmakers themselves? I mean, you don't have to pick an actual movie if you don't want. But are there certain movies or filmmakers that you uh, gravitate towards that are out right now? Well, I like the films of the Cone Brothers very much. Oh yes, 
they they immediately uh, come to mind. Um, but I, you know, whereas I could rattle off a, a list of filmmakers who I think have made great films in the past, it's more difficult for, for me with my tastes today. But I do think the Coen brothers are are very great filmmakers. Uh, there's a European director. He's actually Austrian. He makes most of his films in France called Michael Haneke. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cachet and White Cachet Ribbon. Cachet yeah. is one of the great films of, of this age, I believe. Uh, he made a film that won Best Foreign Film uh, of two or three years ago uh, called uh, Love, yeah. you know, Amour. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a great filmmaker. Um he comes to mind to me. There's another young Italian filmmaker whose work I like called Paolo Sorrentino. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and he made a film, won, won the best foreign film a couple of years ago called The Great Beauty. Um, but look, the films of some of those old timers or those that are gone are the ones that influenced me. And so uh, I have different standards, and I don't try to impose them on anyone else. Well, what what is it about Kane that keeps resonating? I mean, is do you have? I mean, you and I could go on, you know, you know, forever about every little shot in that movie. Is there a certain one that just blows your mind the most in terms? It's of not him? the shots; it's everything. It it's like a quarry for filmmakers. <laughs> it um. It, it contains the very best cinematography that was achievable at that time, the most inventive, innovative sound, great acting, bravura acting, um, uh, a great airtight screenplay, um, art direction, the special effects uh, that it utilized in its day, every editing, um, Everything about that film was just the most innovative and and exceptional work that could be done. And the storytelling is still in a class by itself. Now, I don't think, for me, that there's anything in a class with it, although there are other great films. But you can look at the work of Alfred Hitchcock, and you can look at Citizen Kane, and you, and if you study those films, you will learn all you need to know about the techniques of filmmaking. And, and hey, by the way, they're fun. They're enjoyable. <laughs> it's not just that they're good for you, you know, like like some obscure classical masterpiece. Right. These films are a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Um, so. Uh, Kane had a profound effect on me. It made me want to become a filmmaker, and many, many others of my generation. Absolutely. Are you uh, are you going to participate the next time uh, AFI rolls around? Because you know they do it every ten years, right? And you've been a part of those great. I mean, I love those uh, you know those countdowns they do on CBS, and you're always featured on there. Um, when's the next one coming up? Is it 2017? I have, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't follow. Uh, the award shows uh, these days at all. Yeah. I, I just don't. Uh, I, I just don't follow them. 
Um, oh, I, d- I didn't mean the award show. I mean the the countdowns of the top hundred list. They always they no, always. No, I have don't you. pay any attention oh, okay. to that stuff. They they've interviewed me for a lot of that. Right. And uh, I, I think I'm about interviewed out for that. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would have no interest in doing that again. I don't believe in ranking films. Right. I don't believe there is a greatest film. It, film films like novels, like poetry, like music, are subjective. Everyone has their, you know, everyone has gotten involved with these films. Uh, through their own experiences mm-hmm. and their own readiness at the time to be moved mm-hmm. and the place you are in your own heart and mind. And so there is no greatest. It's futile to make these lists. There's no objective greatest. It's all personal. Absolutely. You know, what is the greatest? I mean, you, you go down a street and in any city or town and you'll get an entirely different list uh, and what's the difference? Who needs these lists? I hate these damn lists. <laughs> I, I don't think they're important. What is the difference? You know, let's say I love The Verdict. Right, I don't think right. it's the greatest film ever made. But does that mean you shouldn't watch it because it's not the greatest? Right. It's great. And there are a lot. here's the test. Those films that stand the test of time that you can still watch after 75 or 50 years or more. Um, there's some silent films I feel that way about. The films of Buster Keaton, yeah. the silent yeah. films of Keaton and Chaplin are still watchable to me and great. Um, and that to me is the, that's the test of time and the test of, of a film that will live on past its uh, end date. Um, so, you know, we don't know what those films will be in 25 years. So I think it's folly to make a list or to pay any attention to the damn list. <laughs> you know, uh, film is about discovery yourself, your own discovery of something that moves you. And it, it, to some people who later become filmmakers, um, They'll see something that may mean nothing to me or to you, Jason, and it will move them to want to become the filmmakers of tomorrow. And that's a fact. And these lists are totally subjective. I love the passion on this subject. That's fantastic. (laughs) You mentioned, just to bring it full circle, and we really appreciate your time, but uh, yeah, I mean, just to bring it full circle, you never know what's going to click with those folks. And uh, you mentioned movies that will live on past their release date and long after the filmmakers are alive, too. And and here we go, the DuPont Festival, Exorcist Steps commemoration. I mean, um, you've made several of those movies, and you mentioned Sorcerer, too invite people to go check that out too french connection um what's it feel like you know just wrapping up here what's it feel like to know that you've left uh some works that are going to inspire other people just like you were inspired by well it feels great you know i get a lot of uh uh emails and uh uh, i get a lot of tweets and uh uh, a, a lot of messages on facebook from people who are just discovering my films. And that's a wonderful feeling because when I made them, I had no idea if they would last beyond the first week of release. <laughs> and and many of the films I made 
have not lasted beyond the first week of release, and many get rediscovered, and some have continued to remain in the zeitgeist. So that's a, a, a wonderful feeling, um, and I'm very pleased and proud of it, which is why, God willing, I will uh, attend uh, the dedication of the Exorcist Steps on October 30th in Georgetown, and I hope most of the people who uh, listen to your great uh, station there will join us there. Gladdy and I are going to give a little talk and do a Q&A and sign whatever people ask us to sign. And I'm very honored that the city of, of Georgetown uh, has um, undertaken to do this. It's a great honor to me. Well... It, we really appreciate you, you taking the time here. We're pushing the hour mark, so I'm going to let you go. I know you're a busy man, but thanks so much for delving into all the, the movie history. Uh, you know, I, I really can't thank you enough. It's a pleasure, Jason. Hope to see you at the dedication. All right, we'll see you there. Bye. All right, William Friedkin on WTOP. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.